1: One-size-fits-all seems like a good idea for clothes, until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental and more. Learn more at UH1.com.
2: Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events.
3: Um, Marina, I wanted to start by asking you a bit about your personal discovery of art. Um, I think you grew up just outside of Cambridge, five miles away from Cambridge, and you write in your, your preface about um, your discovery of Kettle's Yard, and I wonder if you could tell us a bit about, a bit about that.
2: Yes, well, this, actually, someone who worked at Kettle's Yard is here tonight, so um, I, I, I'm Roger Melbert, who's been very helpful to me in the whole um, creation of these essays. But um, So Kells' Yard is an absolutely remarkable place. Um, I'm I'm sure many of you know, but there was a man called Jim Eade, and he'd made friends particularly with Gaudia Breschka and Sophie Gaudia Breschka, and had actually looked after them a bit. And that was the core of the collection in this series of tiny cottages, or perhaps two cottages, which he had built, put together. But the remarkable thing about his collecting was that he saw art as a complete continuum with life it was a slightly Bauhaus idea so that everything it wasn't just the enshrined um, object of great beauty on the walls but the whole whole of the interior was a continuum but above all much more striking than that he held open house and I was taken by a friend who was an undergraduate at Cambridge um, because we were living nearby I was not yet an undergraduate, I was still at school and um, introduced, and I th- felt particularly particularly for Gaudi Breschka, um, who seemed to me, and I think it's very important actually in my whole relationship to art, he seemed to me to have a quality of being able to abstract the passion and the idea and the image, if you like. I mean, his sw- the swallowing of fish image, that fantastic mm. sculpture, is both an abstraction and a sort of distillation as well as a very, very dynamic representation of the act of swallowing a fish. So, so, so this, the, the, that, in a sense, is, I suppose you know, where, my, where my interest, my sort of fascination lies is how you can make the language of visual imagery work at this second level, where it's actually compressing meaning, making it much more intense and powerful. I mean I suppose that you might say that's a definition of making art, but it's, it's the symbolic level that interests mm-hmm.
3: me.. Um again in your really um striking preface, you, you write about the anthropologist Alfred Gell, who has written um to write about art at all is in fact to write about either religion or the substitute for religion. Um I think I think as a child you um you went to a Catholic boarding school and I wanted to ask what how you think your um, Catholic upbringing has um, impacted on your on your understanding of art and relationship with art? That's quite a big question. Yes, I no, know,
2: no, but... it's, no, no. It's just that um, it's always quite hard to own up to these things. <laughs> um, partly because they do go so very deep. Though I think that a lot of the kind of thinking and writing I've tried to do has actually emancipated me for, to some extent. So I'm not quite as much of a Catholic as I was when I was okay. a child. But um, <laughs> but. but but certainly the cult of images dominated my childhood. Mm. So when I, met, when I discovered Alfred Gell's work, it made sense to me retrospectively of my relationship with statues. I used to walk around the gardens at school. I was at a boarding school, um, which were filled with statues of the Virgin Mary. And I'd, always, and I'd think if I, if I just took three steps and then turned quickly, I'd see her move. <laughs> and and, and um, you know, I would catch her catch her smiling or crying or something because there, it was so saturated the stories of this idea of the living statue and there are many wonderful legends which I'm sure many of you know because they've become operas and all kinds of things in which you know, a young a youth will pledge love to the statue of the Virgin Mary but then he's unfaithful to her because he takes a bride and she comes down into his bedroom and plucks him you know to her breast and that's it so <laughs> so this this and so this idea of the living image, which Alfred Jell puts in an anthropological context, he did his, he did his work, his um, art historical work, as an anthropologist in New Zealand and Papua New Guinea. And he was interested in how, as indeed uh, Gombrich and um, Wauberg, Abi Wauberg are, he was interested in how art was an active part of the community's self-preservation that, and this would be not just made images, representations, but it would be dances and uh, social activities together that would create objects and artifacts that were beautiful in the light of the people making them, but also to the light of uh, stranger observers like himself. And so that, uh, this idea that, you, that beauty was being activated to serve the interests of the community of the group he said that that was the principle in his book, Art as Agency, that that was the principle that we should, could look at contemporary art and, and the art and the making of art in the West as well. He said that the sort of mimetic theories, that you paint a beautiful landscape, merely to represent it more profoundly more deeply, actually missed this particular active agency of the made image, which was a secular power as well as a religious power. And that, I think, is probably the, the main drift of the argument of my book. Mm. And, and, and oddly enough, it actually relates very to some, a very early experience I had, which is that when I was an undergraduate, Edgar Vint came, was the Slade professor at Oxford, and he came and gave some lectures on the Sistine Chapel with glass slides. You know, it, was, <laughs> it was amazing to see these glass slides. I mean, they were very state-of-the-art and, and beautifully detailed. And he gave this hugely kind of deep... Interpretation of the meaning of the paint of the paintings frescoes, and I came out with my friend of mine. We were both interested in art, and um, and I said that's just terrible. He just thinks that art is all about the content and the stories. Art is about form and line and color, because I was that that stage had been raised on this aesthetic, you know, aesthetic Mm -hmm. modernism, and um, but I was absolutely converted. I mean, I had been converted by Vint that art is actually full of content and it's actually full of ideology. And it is telling you the story of the sacred narrative of salvation. I mean, it can do that. And therefore, we need to pay, in a sense, more alert attention, you know, because it's actually doing things to us. It's not just a kind of beautiful evocation or, or perhaps troubling evocation of a nude. It's actually saying something about what bodies are, that is impinging on us. So
3: that is acting on us. Mm, yeah. yeah, acting yeah. on us. Um, that, you talk about some of your favourite writers and how they um, and they write about art and artists and how some of them are professional critics, but but not all of them are. Mm. Um, and, you, and you also mention in your preface that you have a sort of suspicion that writing about art isn't taken very seriously. It's not proper criticism. It's more of a an accompaniment, like a like a pianist um, <laughs> playing for a singer. Um, I wonder if you could perhaps say something about your sense of yourself as an art critic. I mean, these, these essays collected in, in this book, most of them you've been writing over the past nearly 30 time, yes, years, I yes, think. Mm-hmm. So um,
2: how do you see yourself as, as,
3: as a critic in that, in that context?
2: Well, um, the, there is criticism, which you can do you know, in the daily papers or in a book, which is actually a critique. And a, but there's also, and I think it's sort of rising as a form it, it, the, probably the technical word is ekphrasis, mm-hmm. you know, which is the, the Greek word for the living evocation of a work of art. And often those ekphrasis actually imagine the work to be moving. I mean, the famous one is the Shield of Achilles, in which it actually seems to be like a film, and the battle seems to be taking place, and the shepherds are truly you know, shepherding their flocks in this bronze shield. So that's, so. in a sense, it's a communion With a different medium, with words, with the the very stuff of the of the visual image, but um, the the writers that I like, um, and I sort of you know feel are avatars, if you like, and I would like to be in their wake. um, They were actually very often poets. So Mm. sort of someone like Baudelaire, you know, was actually a professional art critic. I mean, he wrote. He went to the salon every year, and did his you know, resumes of who we thought was good. And that's actually a tremendous lesson in taste because when you look up the actual paintings that Baudelaire singles out, you know, <laughs> it's quite hard to think that these were the greatest paintings of the day. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, so it's got actually nothing to do with kind of, I mean, or, or rather what it shows you is that criteria of taste and appreciation keep changing. Mm-hmm. even for somebody who won reveres like Baudelaire. Mm-hmm. But Baudelaire was obviously also needing to look at art, not just to earn a bit of money, which he needed. And that's the same for some other art critics. I mean, John Ashbury, another great artist, um, a great artist in words, who made some wonderful, wonderful ecphases, including his very long poem, Self-Portrait in a Convex Mirror, that which is the poem that he takes off from the Parmigianino uh, portrait, and then this is sp- absolutely splendid. I mean, one of the most remarkable explorations of the idea of the self as seen in a mirror. Watch uh, how, how, how your features and your face relate to your inner being. This is an amazing poem. Well, he worked as, a news cri- as an art critic for Newsweek. I mean, he was a regular Newsweek art critic. So, so. But for him, it was food. He needed to have that. He needed, literally, money, but also mm. food, mind food, you know, to... To, to, to be in touch with that way of thinking, the visual way of thinking, on a, on a pretty much weekly basis. Um, and then, of course, there are some much older uh, examples um, like Diderot. Diderot was a very good art critic and with lots of theories um, and saw that as intri- intrinsic to his thought and to his his explorations. And then there are wonderful... Eccentric writers like Gertrude Stein mm, yeah. and, and, and Elizabeth Bishop, another one, very who herself painted, so she she actually tried to you know, practiced as a as an artist as well. So it's a there is a kind of family, you know mm. that you know very often when one writes, one wants to sort of belong to a family yeah. of, the, of the sort of the people who one likes reading. You and, want to come out of a tradition. And, yes, yeah, yes, and yeah. you want to be in sort of. A conversation with yeah. people across time. And that's uh, your family. That's, that's yeah. a bit of my family. So. <laughs> um, uh, um, in the book,
3: you, you talk about how um, the first artist to ask you to write, uh, uh, um, I think it was uh, for her catalogue, was um, mm-hmm. Helen Chadwick um, mm-hmm. for an exhibition she had on at the ICA in, in 1986. And, and you write very well about how, as a quite solitary writer at home, you really enjoyed interacting with mm. her and talking to her in her kitchen and sort of spending time with her and getting to know her. And I wondered if you could talk a bit about how you how you um, relate to the artists you write about and what that what that means to you as a
2: critic. Yes. Well, I mean, I have made friends with several artists about whom I've written often after being asked to write about them, so not ahead of time. It can be a bit daunting if is a very close friend to be asked mm. to write about their work. Um, but, um, but I have made a number of, uh, you know, very, I mean, Kiki Smith is another. And Helen was, I mean, these are very remarkable people. So it is actually, you know, a, a huge sort of pleasure and inspiration to be near them. And Helen was very, very exceptional. I mean, she was extraordinarily well read. And she read, I was thinking about it because I knew we were going to be in conversation. I was thinking, what is the difference between the way an artist reads and the way somebody reads when they're researching a book, like a biography? or? And, of course, they're entirely following their instinct. Mm-hmm. They're not following a program of scholarship. They're going for things all the time. So was there, I mean, one of the general things one could say is that, being with an artist to discover what they're doing with their work is always following a path of their discoveries. And that path will take one to many, many books. But the books are not like a reading list for a course. They're very different. They're very scattered. And they are, in a way, a map of their imagination Mm. as it it travels. So that's very... And Helen was particularly in that. Uh, She was a very good writer, rather in a similar style to her own... Um, her own sculpture and her artworks, and I—I I, I mean, she could have really written that essay herself. I, I've introliquized a lot of her. I mean, I do acknowledge it. But is that part of the process? <laughs> that yes, it is. Yes, yes. You I need mean, to be that Yes, of? I mean, there's a, there's a, and it is. It's, it's an interesting form of friendship because actually, uh, people open up a lot to people they don't know. It's very strange. They almost more than, you know, you're there to listen and to understand, if you can, what's, what's going on in the work. And uh, they will open up a lot. And then, of course, when people do open up, you feel very close to them, mm. unless you hate what they're saying. <laughs> but, well, you, feel, you feel grateful yes, to yes, them. Yes, but... I mean, that has happened to me. I mean, I have, I have had some slightly repugnant, uh, but they're not in the book.
3: <laughs> <laughs> they didn't make it in. <laughs> I mean, it's not, always, it's
2: not always a process of sort of loving identification it can be Mm. quite different
3: (laughs) yeah Um, well Paula Rego is in the book and um, you I think you're quite close to her um, mm. and uh, I think over your entire writing career you've been very interested in nursery rhyme and myth Mm -hmm. and uh, and, and as an artist she's obviously very um, connected to that world as well I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about about, about her relationship with, with myth and fairy story
2: well, I first saw her work at the Serpentine when Alistair Warman curated the show in the 80s. And the striking paintings in that, that particular show were the Vivian girls, these delinquent girls um, whom she had uh, found in the work of Henry Darger, who's absolutely unknown really then, now very celebrated uh, Chicago hospital porter, who's you know, left in his room when he died a lot of extraordinary um, narrative fantasies about a, a band of girls defending themselves against hostile forces, mostly kind of... Anyway, it's an extraordinary epic. So, But she took the characters and she made these very free, very uh, almost calligraphic, sort of fluent, very fluent paintings. And I did find them very... I mean, I was very fascinated by them. But then, of course, she also had this body of very much more monumental, solid bodies um, in perspective uh, of... Her, you know, a woman cleaning her father's huge jackboot, mm. you know, a young, a young girl, the sort of, and other scenes of very disturbing female collusion with systems of power. And some of the systems of power that, uh, that uh, Paula grew up with are not a million miles from my own background, because she, w- she was in Salazar's Portugal, and uh, as a little girl. And um, my mother was born into fascist Italy in the south of Italy. And the worlds are quite, quite similar. I mean, there's a presence in Paula's um, imagination of women in black who know things. Mm. You know, they're, 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 they're often servants. They're on the fringes, mm. but they're the ones who actually know, and they know above all about the dangers of life. In a, and so, in you know, in more recent work, she's done a fantastic protest series about the reform. Of, I mean, for the reform of abortion laws in Portugal, and I think some of those memories are going back to her childhood when mm. when abortion was completely illegal and was performed by these women in black, you know, in 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 bedrooms and kitchen tables and things. So. And and, and that's, so that, that world is, is, you know, that that is the southern Italian world too. It's a very Catholic world, but it's also a militarized, patriarchal world to do with the fascist systems. And so I felt, you know, and, and Paula and I bonded over a very crazy, crazy thing because she was very tongue-tied and shy in those day, early days of her <coughs> fame. And we did a third uh, Radio 3 interview, and she was very... But the moment the breakthrough had happened was when we discovered that we both as children had read this saccharine, sadistic writer for children called the Comtesse de Ségur, who who wrote books called The the Disasters of Sophie, in which Sophie was... Sophie was constantly being punished because you know, she would go into the kitchen and eat a peach, you know, and so she would then get beaten, you know. And honestly, you can see it in Paula's paintings. Yeah. Really. But when, and I was, in those days, why I read Les Malheurs de Sophie and these related cruel books about girls um, was because I was at that stage in my childhood in Belgium, where she was, of course, the most recommended reading for girls. <laughs> Also a background of, imperial, of colonial, um, patriarchal Belgium, very strong Catholic co- collusion with, co- with colonial torture and so forth. Yeah, we share that. We share that. We have that. We have a twisted Catholic mind. <laughs> <laughs> so I've written a lot about her at different stages. I mean, I, in fact, I sort of combined some of the pieces in that one in the book. Yeah. But I, I mean, there's—you know, there are separate, um, different ones I've written over, th- over time quite a lot. Um, when we met last week to, to talk about what
3: we were going to talk about you, you, you said something very interesting you said that you thought that she made some of her work for instance the, the abortion painting series you made, she made these things to stop bad things from happening mm. and I wonder if you could perhaps talk a bit about, about that yes.
2: well I think that's one of the functions of the active image this idea of the you know, this jellian this idea that um, it, you, images are phosphorus they actually do things they have, they're wildfire um, I mean, in, in in his Maori and uh, Papua New Guinea studies, many many of the art objects are made to ward off demons, mm. and you know a lot of Catholic icons are made to ward off demons too. I mean, it's not. I mean, the crucifix is you know is brandished in exorcism, exactly that function, and we we don't sort of allow it or permit it because we think of Christianity as being an official religion and not a magic magical. Um, but I, I mean, for me, I, I, I kind of agree with him, and I think these, these, there is a continuum between these things. Of course, there is depth, and there is metaphysics, and there are there is spirituality, and all the other things. But but this 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 function of the function of the visual image to act as the technical word is apotropaic mm-hmm. to ward off danger, to ward off sickness, to keep the wearer. Or the user from harm that, that is absolutely, and I think it 's very strong in contemporary art, um, and one of the reasons I mean, sort of skipping to the sort of last section of the book, one of the reasons that iconoclasm has become such an issue these days and uh, is actually practiced by a lot of artists as well um, is partly because of that that the simulation of the breaking of something that is not liked seemed fe- is, is felt to have an impact on the world. Mm. It's, it's probably not entirely... I mean, it's the immediate thing one would say is that it's not entirely true, but actually, that's moot. I mean, it is quite important what statements are made, uh, visual statements as well as, as non-visual statements. Um, your book contains a
3: really um, strong essay on the feminist artist um, Kiki Smith, I didn't really know Kiki Smith until I read your piece and I, then I looked her up. I wonder if you could just... I'm sure most of you know her, but could you just describe her work, her work briefly for those in the audience who might not know her
2: work? Mm, yes. Well, she's actually got a show coming up, which is uh, uh, great, yeah. which is going to be at Timothy Taylor. Yeah, Very I think soon. it opens tomorrow, I yes, think. Yes, I think so, yeah. yes. Um, well, Kiki Smith um, is, is one of the artists, and there are quite a number of them. Louise Bourgeois would be another who absolutely embraced many despised aspects of female materiality. So what she went for, Helen Chadwick also did that. So what she went for were many of the things that had been denigrated. She went for the flesh, for the menstruation, for pissing, for uh, all kinds of, uh, lots and lots of imagery of fertility and infertility, there is a whole strand of mourning in her work about, about not having children. Um, she made, and it's often witty, it's mm. very light, so sometimes she's, I mean, there's a beautiful piece, a beautiful sculptural piece, rather Brancusi-like, made of glass, which is, is actually a kind of huge sea of sperm. Mm. <laughs> so she's, actually, I mean, she liked using a lot of uh, degraded materials, yeah. m- materials that are not usually considered noble, <clears throat> Um, though she has actually been making things in bronze recently. But her sculpture in the Frieze uh, Sculpture Park uh, now is bronze, but it's been painted with chalk. With uh, It's actually car paint, it's been, and white car paint, but it looks like chalk. So she's actually debased the grandeur of bronze yeah. to make it look more material. And that is a sculpture of Alice in Wonderland called Alice Sear, S C W E R. Um, Sia, and then brackets Alice, and Alice is sort of looking as if she's possessed, and she's holding out her hands as if she's sensing something. Right. So, and uh, and so Kiki is interested in the body as a medium for other kinds of knowledges that are not. So she's done Mary Magdalene. She's done Lot's wife. She did a wonderful sculpture of Lot's wife. So the Pillar of Salt, this sort of woman punished for looking back becomes a marvellous um, image of suffering, of female suffering, and the idea of, of memory, the idea of the woman who looks back is punished for looking back. But, so here she is, this incinerated figure of memory. Mm. So there's a lot of echoes in her work of um, ideas of suffering, women suffering in the past. She takes archetypes, she takes um, characters, and she's done lots on the Virgin Mary. She also has a Catholic background. A bit of a recurring theme yeah, there. A bit, a, yeah. a bit of a recurring theme, yes. <laughs> um, so, she, but um, Kiki, I, I, I mean, is also important in terms of what I've tried to explore, because she's very playful. Mm. She doesn't have a studio. She integrates her entire practice with her life. So her kitchen table is full of sculptures that are half being made while she's eating, and um, and she was brought up by her, her father was a famous sculptor. And her sister is an artist as well, Seaton Smith. And, they were br- and her mother was a singer, and they were brought up not very well off at all. And the children were made to make models of the father's sculptures, um, when they would, yeah, so they, they did a lot of folding with origami. Mm. But she likes the idea that everything is in a continuum, that you're at the, you know, you're at the kitchen table, you're or your, helping your father make your sculptures and so forth, and she's continued that in her own Mm. own, uh, habitat, Mm. even though she makes very large sculptures. She also uses a lot of very light materials, like beautiful Japanese papers, and that are like cloth. Mm. Yes, textile, cloth, lace, glass. Mm. So she's taking the end of the spectrum that was considered craft, Feminine, mm. denigrated for that reason, mm. and retrieved it, and actually so successfully transvalued it that many of you might not even recognise these as being denigrated materials anymore, because I mean it's been such a return to you know for textiles and craft work that actually it no longer feels sort of like marginal, a, like an inferior. Yeah, it no longer know. feels marginal. Mm. But that's been has mm. been an achievement of a lot of women artists, mm. not only but but mostly. Um, so Louise Bourgeois yes. is another artist Very who you write about yes. really well in
3: the book, and she obviously has done a lot in, with stitching and, and making, yes. and, and, and her mother, I think, was a...
2: Yeah, a tapestry, tapestry repairer. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Um, they used to have to respect, re, restore the Cupid's genitals, because, they, because the obvious more tapestries had had their, the, they had been censored. Yeah. So they were taken to the repair shop. Put it's an back. early memory, and a very, influ- very influential <laughs> on her. <laughs> that as a child she saw her mother carefully re-embroidering mm. the little penises on the Cupids. <laughs>
3: <laughs> and then she went. She <laughs> she, got, she went on to have three three sons, and she had to live <laughs> with her husband, and sort of, yeah, and it became very significant for yeah, her. Yes. Um I wonder if you could just talk a bit a bit a bit about her childhood, and um, she had quite a.
0: Well, a she, made a, well, she
2: made a sort of, her work has made a tremendous story out of it. Yeah. Um, I'm a little bit, I mean, actually, I sort of have a few caveats about it. But, okay. little, but basically, the story is, and I'm sure many of you know it, that um, her father, who was rather a d- dandy debonair figure, um, brought into the household an English governess who was actually called Sadie, and, um, and then to little Louise's. Uh, and Louise felt that she should have been a boy. she was called Louise because if she 'd been a boy she would have been called Louis and she always felt that um, it was very she was very disappointing to her father because she wasn 't a boy and then she found her you know, absolute tragic tragic sense of failure that he had he didn 't love her he loved the governess so he not only had married her mother but he also was having an affair with the governess, mm. who was another love object in Louise's life, so she made in the 70s, and it went on for quite a while, a series of very splendid revenge mise en scène, um, which called the cannibal, in which she cannibalized the figure of the father on a table, wearing an extraordinary sort of goddess Kybele suit with many, many breasts, and I mean, she—it it, was—it was Baroque, it was mischievous, and it was very. Uh, very, very important to feminist rhetoric in art at the period. And why I have slight misgivings about it is I don't think it's the, her best work, for mm. one thing, but I also think that the Freudian narrative.
1: you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at UH1.com. That's UH1.com.
2: It's too strong. You know, it's sort of too neat. And I think it sort of comes out of Manhattan. <laughs> In a kind of, you know, not entirely, um, well, not to me, well, it isn't quite sort of, it isn't quite fluid enough. It doesn't, yeah. it doesn't have enough changes. But she certainly did make some wonderful pieces that were cells in which you look into mm. a bedroom with mirrors. Mm. And then, there, where it's less explicit than the Candle Will Feast on the mm. Father, you do get a sense of the mysteries of the parents' mm. sex lives. They're quite very, sinister, weren't they? Yeah, very yeah. strong, yes. Mm. And then she she said, you know, she had a prime symbol. She's a symbolic artist. Um, and she, you know, um, had a very, a very strong interest in. In, in, that, in, in that kind of material, in mythical material, she people don't talk about this very much. But she, her husband was actually a, a, a kind of connoisseur of primitive art, and he was the he was the curator at the Metropolitan Museum of Modern Art, I think. No, the Museum of Modern Art. Of I may, I may have got the museum wrong, but anyway, he was a he was a cura- very important curator in New York, and did some of the early exhibitions about primitive art and its mm. relationship to so-called primitive art, and its relationship to contemporary art. So she actually was very much in the world where people were thinking about that. And I think there's not been enough made of that in the discussion of her work. But, but to go back to her idea of the totem, for example, totems, fetishes, all these ideas that were circulating through the interest in African art, she, um, her totem is the spider. Yeah. And she saw her mother as a spider. She made, some of you may have seen at the Tate, a huge spider and several other spiders, she gives, underneath, they have the eggs in a basket, mm-hmm. in a glass basket yeah. under, underneath the spider's legs. And she sees the spider as, the, of course, the great weaver, like her mother. And she said, you know, that when she was in a good mood, she would want to repair. But when she was in a bad mood, she wanted to cut. Mm. So she saw, this is the sort of work of the mother, the spider, who is both, you know, repairing and making this exquisite, exquisite webs, mm but at the same time is a dangerous, can be dangerous to the fly. Mm. So she used that as a kind of outer ego. Mm. She calls this this series of sculptures of spiders Maman. Maman. Mm.
3: Profoundly ambivalent. Mm, Um, You say in the book that she had to wait a very long time to get the acclaim and recognition Mm. that she now has. Do you have any thoughts on why that recognition might have come so late on in her life?
2: Yes, no, I mean, and it's, and it's comparable to, to Kiki Smith, and of course, I didn't say the main thing is that they're figurative. Yeah. I'm sorry, that was <laughs> a of the reference in the room. I mean, Kiki began doing completely figurative art, mm. so did Paula Rego. Paula, Paula um, actually wanted to claim illustration as an art. Again, this a, you know, kind of pejoratively seen as a sort of lower form, but she's always thought that. Rowlandson, Gilray, you know, were a truly marvellously vigorous artists. Also, at the end of the 19th century, the French artist Lautrec is a very famous illustrator and poster designer artist, but there are lots of others who Paula very much admires. So similarly, Louise Bourgeois was... She was not sort of, you know, given the, her, the respect she was due, because even though she had this relationship to the symbolization of African art... Um, in, in many ways, she she was doing. She wasn't modernist. She mm. just wasn't modernist. And she had a relationship with surrealism, which much appreciated, especially in America at that time. So, um, but I think that there was. I mean, the Guerrilla Girls did need to, you know, be, be the girls. Yeah, they yeah. needed to be Guerrillas. Yeah. I mean, it was there was just a general, and it's true in many other aspects of life too. I mean, things have. Remarkably changed. It's still not parity at all, um, and of course, prices reflect it. Mm. Even, yeah, I mean, even the greatest. I mean, not that I, I am one that actually supports the inflated state of the art market, but <laughs> but it is. But it is actually, you know, sort of wrong that a is is worth less than a Damien House. Yes. Yeah.
3: Mm. Um, talking about Tassaddeen, there's a really um, really remarkable piece in the in the book called Footage, where you write about Dean's um, struggles with arthritis and um, her problems with walking and the impact that's had on her work. And I think we saw that in the recent Royal Academy show. I wonder if you might just talk a bit a bit about
2: that. It's a, I mean, in a way, it's a very personal piece, and I, you know, did feel that I was, you know, sort of like putting big, heavy hands on somebody who's so delicate in many ways such a very delicate sensibility but what happened was that you know tacita's Arth- rheumatoid arthritis uh, was getting worse and and um she was in lo- lots of pain and this is a long time ago and and i am um, i said to her, well you know actually there are lots of wonderful stories in mythology and fairy tales about limping and she said oh i want to know i want to know tell me so I wrote something for her about that. And, um, and she really liked it. It's a very, very strange corner of mythology. It's unbelievably deep. I mean, when you... Jacob wrestling with the angel in the Bible ends up with a withered hip. Cinderella loses her slipper. I mean, it's just extraordinary how much this idea of you know, being set off balance by something happening runs in um, and I'm not the person who uh, invented this theory at all it's Carlo Ginzburg a great great historian um, wrote a famous book called Ecstasies in which he says that it seems to be a kind of part of the lexicon of imagination and symbolism that the sign of having crossed to the other side and come back is limping Mm. So Oedipus limps, uh, anyway, that 's the one she, story she took yeah. she took she took antigone, yeah. and uh, and Oedipus, um, and she had found when, when she developed this excruciating illness, she discovered that she'd had an interest in limping, going f- right back to her childhood. She had drawings she'd made, and it was a wonderful story because actually she'd forgotten that she'd made these drawings, mm. and then Delphina. Um, foundation where she'd had a, f- a fellowship when she was young, um, found a roll of old drawings by her and returned them to her in the 90s, I think. And she found in the in this roll of drawings she'd made way back, drawings of Oedipus and Byron. Almost like a premonition. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oedipus and Byron, you know, another person who limped. So, <laughs> so she was really um, very spooked, but she has got this, you know, I mean it's very strange. She's very, she has real um, extraordinary affinities. She can really, you, you probably all saw the clovers. Yeah. You know, she's, ever since she was a child, she's been able to find not only four-leaf clovers. So five and six-leaf five clovers. Five-leaf clovers. Six-leaf clovers. And but, uh, and she just can see them. Yeah. And she's she has got a, a sixth sense almost. She's got, yeah. yes. It's a, it's a it's a, it's, I mean, it's what artists often have, which is a, you know, an ability to respond to see things. and it, it is, but she does have it in a very, very marked sense. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then there's the other aspect, which is that she's very, uh, you know, her, her, she says, I mean, she articulates that her theme is obsolescence. She's interested in things at the point where they are ceasing to be perfect. And she, she, even the buildings, I mean, she's done, you know, various, I mean, her wonderful early piece, Sound Mirrors. Is about the some more there are these huge di- dishes that were used to, I think, to triangulate where the bombers were by on the bounce of their sound. But she turned them into this monumental, monumental piece of photographs. But they're totally obsolete mm-hmm. now. And so similar, she's all the way along. She's in, and in the portraits, the portrait gallery show. You know, many of the people, her subjects were caught just at the end of their lives. I mean, they really are uh, monuments, tributes to people on the way out. They're mm. very sort of beautifully and slowly yeah, done in the way. done with yeah. great tenderness, yeah. reverence, and of course, extraordinary skill, beautiful luminosity, beautiful lighting. Yeah.
3: Um, I've asked you mainly about female artists this, this evening. Um because that's what I'm interested in too, but um, you, you do say in the book that the inner lives of, of um, women have always fascinated you. Um, do you think there is such a thing as, as women's art these days,
2: women's art as a, as a separate discipline? I think that I wouldn't want to make it separate, which is why I included male artists, because I didn't actually want to make case mm. that there was a... Because the, the, there, there, there are these scenes of play and body which are very much dominated by great creative women artists. Um, the, the, uh, the sort of themes of the book are also about how so many artists are preoccupied with making visible what can't be seen. Mm. And actually the phrase, you know, the phrase of making visible the invisible is full clay. And, and, and so there are artists who have, male artists, who have been very, very, you know, involved in in this making manifest what is actually beyond our senses and we don't even notice it because it's so intrinsic to art mm. we don't actually notice that we're seeing being shown all the time things we can't see and it sometimes can be quite technical such as in an impressionist painting it's simply the shadows the you know the famous colored shadows we don't see them because we don't have those eyes but we can see them in the painting but that, so that's one so that, that's a technically technical, technical mm-hmm. visibility but then, of course, there are all the beings. You know, all the. I mean, well, I mean Helen's. Helen's. The, you know, this love between the, the. This Baroque angel and and which is herself, and the lamb. You know, this is not something we are going to see, but it becomes. It, it attains complete, uh, convincing reality. It, it attains being mm. through. Through the paint, or whatever the medium is. Mm. I'm aware that it's probably time
3: for questions. Does, does anyone have a question for Marina? Oh, look. Yes, Sorry, could you wait for the mic? Thank you for the people at the back. Thanks. Oh, thanks um, for that. Um, I was thought it was really interesting what you said about the um, image of the cannibalism in Louise Bourgeois being mm. or feeling like it's sort of somewhat overly literal. And what do you think it is about symbolism that? sort of seems to demand a level of obliquity even when as you said at the beginning of the talk kind of art is full of content and narrative (coughs) in contrast to that kind of um, sort of uh, disinterested formal aesthetic I wonder if you could talk a bit about that
2: I think that in the great danger, when you, you're interest, if you're interested in... I think there are two great dangers if you're interested in symbolism and mythology. And that is that... that you, and actually allegory, too. Is, that, is, is if you sort of go for an exact match. I mean, I think this is not good for art in any medium. It's not good for writing. It's not good for... I mean, there's an example in, in art, which is Mantegna. Mantegna painted allegories. And they're rather stiff because they're too literal. You know, there's evil is, you know, wisdom is sort of being attacked by evil, and evil is... It's too sort of schematic. So, and then with mythology, it's also, and with and the symbolism too, it's also very, very important, to me at least, that the fluidity is permitted, that you don't think that this is a rigid, fixed meaning. There are schools of mythological interpretation which tend to affix a meaning. So, you know, if you see an orange, it's going to be this. If you're going to see, and to some extent, Christian iconography does that too. But, but it's not, that's not where the interest lies, and certainly not for contemporary artists. For contemporary artists, where the interest lies is to keep pushing the values and the significance into another place, so that we actually are refreshed and surprised rather than confirmed... In our pre-existing ideas, if you want to be confirmed, your pre-existing ideas, you go to propaganda. So, and propaganda, of course, uses symbolism all the time, and probably advertising does too. But advertising is very difficult to see; it's so clever. You know, it's very difficult to see how you're being manipulated, which is, of course, all our problems now. <laughs> but, um, but, but an artist really does take up the language that is available and 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 then tries to kind of. Yeah, move it, move it into another place which gives you a kind of shock and it can be negative or, or I mean or it could be and it can be positive so um, so with the cannibalism piece, I think it was just perhaps a little bit too crowd pleasing you know, it's sort of a very i don't I don't want to criticize her but um you know when she write, when she does her beautiful diary of dreams and all her inner, this wonderful, uh, very very flu- fluid and loose, beautiful, personal, intense drawings of her states of mind. It's very different. It's very, it has a huge sort of opening up onto her horizon. It doesn't close things down. How do you
3: describe your writing? Um, you talk a lot about the artist's
2: fluidity um, when...
3: They're taking on different subject matters, but and I feel like your writing has some of that fluidity as well. Could you talk about your process and how you see the interplay between your writing and their artwork, and what that means to you?
2: Um, I suppose I'm endlessly interested in how something can have a, a huge hinterland of meaning in the past and feelings attached that actually has sort of gone and can be reactivated. I mean, an example, I suppose, from my own work, and certainly some of these artists are doing that, is simply the whole body of imaginative narrative. I mean, one of the um, artists you know, here is Bosch, and I wanted to have Bosch in there because he's such a singular, singular imagination. But, and it's sort of inexhaustible, and we have to actually... Mostly, we don't know what he means... <laughs> which is kind of, which is in a way sort of interesting in itself. But, you know, I, the the one in here is about the painting called The Haywain. And when I sort of went into what The Haywain could be, I, I sort of followed all the metaphors for hay and for straw and God knows why. I and mean, it's an incredible area, huge. I, I mean, didn't get to the very, I mean, I just scratched the surface of it. But it turned out that one of the dominant sort of things was really money. And... Um, and so, actually, this is it worked very well as an ale- for, for us now. This painting of people rushing to hell, um, following this Heywain, is a the extraordinary portrait of the kind of you know, like the crash, or which is this tenth anniversary now, um, or or this, just the general pursuit, you know, of the city of London. This is so. so it sort of works for, for, for us now. Even though the language of it is pretty lost, I mean, in terms of biblical imagery of straws and and hay, but it survives in some phrases that one uses. Building bricks with straw, for example. The hell is in, in the painting. Hell is being built with bricks with straw. I.e., it won't, it won't stand, won't, won't hold.
3: Um. What I wanted to sort of raise here is the sort of uh, problematic or vexed question of medium. And you talk about Kiki Smith using um, you know, denigrated materials, transforming them, and uh, the way Paolo Rego uses paint. And, of course, uh, Tasta Dean uses film, but mm. in a kind of elegiac, sometimes quite nostalgic way. Yeah, and I, I wanted to ask you about, you know, a lot of artists now use um, video and photography. It would be perhaps be the dominant medium. It's much more sort of disembodied than some of the um, work that you talked about. And I just wanted to know if you can say something mm. about that sort of rise of um,
0: video and photography as the kind of central well medium of our Al- Alison time. Alison has just
2: asked this question. <laughs> <laughs> Alison Turnbull um, is a very fine drawer and uh, painter. And I very much... I mean, I'm sorry that... I've just written an essay for Alison's book, so I'm sorry it was too late to the, get in this collection. But um, I, I think that that sort of scrupulosity and attention is something I'm very, very attracted to. And also the spontaneity of drawing. The, I mean, the, you know, the way that it has an, an immediacy. And, and, and it is like thinking. It's, it's a kind of thinking with a different medium than... Just the mind, and, and um, so, but there is a section of the book on the, on, on uh, digital media, mm-hmm. because um, but I'm, I've concentrated on how digital media are very apt to express phantoms, so spectres, that actually the this new this this hu- huge paradox of modernity. That our latest cutting edge te- technologies are often used to produce the invisible and unimaginable actually, um, so there 's uh, you know artists who kind of evoke zombies and th- th- these kinds of um, states and it is I mean it started in the 19th century with photography. Photography was seen as a medium to see the invisible um, and it 's continued and now. Uh, The average child film, digitized, will have in it any number of complete figments. And they're not presented as figments. They are seen as real. I mean, and very convincingly, and sometimes fabulous. I mean, you know, the flying dinosaurs in in the one, um, you know, the utopia of Pandora in Avatar, fabulous. But they're not real, you know. They look real, but this is... (laughs) This is, and I think it's a very new, it's a very, very, very new condition of imagination that we are able to realize with such conviction that things that are figments, I mean I think it's in in other respects it's very dangerous, I don't go into this so much in this book um, because the whole hallucinatory landscape of uh, news media, uh, for example, is... um, you know, we have no idea how, we're, how that's affecting us. Thank you. Marina, you're such a tour de force, honestly. You just kind of sweep into all different kinds of intellectual ideas and the arts and religion. And it's, it's, it's a privilege to hear you speak. Um, I was wondering where you're going next, because you've done religion, you've done art critique, and you've been doing it for a very long time, I think. Are you going to start on digitalization of art? Because <laughs> uh, <laughs> somebody's got to. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I am actually writing a, a, a book, so, um, but it's about the refugee crisis. So uh, the, the digitalization comes into it a bit, actually, because there are aspects of the refugee crisis that have, that have um, been affected very strongly by digital media r- reports. And actually, yes, I mean, and the the push against it, too, is also driven by. So, um, but I've tried to look at, I mean, it's an example of looking at something in the past and sort of trying to uncover. I've tried to look at how uh, different attitudes to the stranger, the arrival, the arrival, the the arrivant, someone who arrives, um, are, are embedded in legal structures in the past. Um, and in stories, there are just different, you know, relationships to that. So it's partly about the law of sanctuary, the law which doesn't seem to be operating so much these days.
3: So there were kind of facts mm. in people's
2: lives. And well, there was, I mean, it was, it's a major theme. It's a really major theme all through, I mean, it's Oedipus, you know, who goes to Colonus as, as, a, as a petitioner after he's committed his terrible crime. So he's received and given sanctuary. Orestes, after he kills his father, his mother, goes to Delphi to seek sanctuary. So there's a so that's in the Greek very strong. Then in Rome it's even stronger with Dido and Aeneas, because Aeneas arrives as a petitioner for sanctuary. He breaks the law of sanctuary because he goes without telling her. So that's you know that's um, so I'm trying to look at these ways that if if we can draw out of the past a, a new kind of body of Feelings and understanding mutual rights uh, through, through these stories that enshrine the reception of the stranger at their heart.
3: Yes. Hi, um, thank you. Um, I was just wondering about your choice of the word enchantment mm. for the title of the whole book. <laughs>
2: um, well, I think that the idea of the, uh, of the a- active object, the, the artifact that has agency, is very much in the world of enchantment. I mean, um, it's not, of course, always a benign enchantment. It can be a malign enchantment, too. So it's not how enchanting, what an, you know, on a, one enchanted evening. It's not quite that. <laughs> um, it's, a, it's a strong use. It's, it's really, I mean, I, I'm sort of quite serious about it. I mean, I think that in words, too, you know, they do... I'm very struck by the, by the uh, enshrining of hate speech in law. I mean, I think that... I agree with it. Um, but I think it actually shows that people do feel harmed by words when nothing has happened. And, you know, one does feel that. I mean, it's... If you get... It doesn't... Thank God it hasn't happened to me for ages now, but, you know, dirty phone calls are extremely troubling... But why? You know, and that's because the, the idea of a verbal act has power. It just ha- does. I mean, even though there is no actual cause and effect that's palpable, you can't measure it. And perhaps you can measure it in brain waves or something, but um, you possibly can. Mm. So, so I think that... Uh, and, and, of course, there have been the, the, whole, icon, the whole history of iconoclasm is all about a visceral response of viewers to the power of an image.
0: Because uh, women's art and religion as a... Uh, cultural thread as well as a theme of various kinds returns in your work and in the minds of all of us so frequently. And because you mentioned Louise Bourgeois and Maman, which was just outside Tate Modern a little while ago, it sort of travels around, right? Mm, It got me thinking about the differences that you might see and maybe even the parallels or the possibility for a really enriching conversation that you might see between, say, something which did happen, Bourgeois' Maman, Outside Tate Modern, and something which could happen, Bourgeois Maman outside Canterbury Cathedral. If and when women artists are working within and around, and maybe troubling the waters of churches and cathedrals here and elsewhere, how do you think uh, their artworks are being perceived, or are enriching, or working with those places?
2: The the, the Anglican Church has been rather receptive, um, really quite sort of remarkably so, possibly because of the ordination of priests. I mean, it may go hand in hand with the fact that there are now, you know, many influential and apparently extremely good uh, priests who are women. So that, I think, might have changed things. I mean, there are some very good artworks in churches now. I mean, I think the Hushiari window in, in uh, St. Martyrs in the Fields is, is absolutely wonderful. And that's even not, you know, she's not a Christian. So it's, that, that was a fairly uh, radical move on the part of that church, which, of course, is a radical church. I mean, it's a, it has a history of... So, so I, I you no, know, I'm quite impressed. I was once a judge of the, um, the ACE, the Art and Christian Inquiry Book Prize, and we were shown the works of art that were in contention for the Art Prize. And it was really very impressive. And I was in Salisbury Cathedral the other day to open the exhibition that um, Anna Maria Pacheco had. And her work is quite political. Um, so again, you know, it was very open to these, to these thoughts by, by a woman and works. I mean, the other flip side of your question is is, the, is what people get from encountering art, something that can perform some similar function to the encounter with the cathedrals of the past which were so filled with beautiful art. And I think that, I mean, Alfred Gell certainly thought so, and I think there is, a, there is an element. Of, I mean, one of the things that the, that the, the two uh, pursuits have in common is that they are assemblies. And the assembly is quite important to the impact. Um, ladies and gentlemen, yes, Marina Warner, Eleanor thank you so much. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events.